0: All right, well, we are coming down toward the end of the book of Job, and uh, Neil kindly uh, uh, summarized a lot of the book for us in in his uh, talk to the kids, so I hope you were listening so that we could all be kids together in that. I want to just bring us up to speed on some of the more recent discussion we've been having on Job. And, uh, you know, one of the things that got lost in the pandemic is my clicker. So if anybody has my clicker, (laughs) please return it. But uh, I'm going to have to work uh, a little bit differently here. But there won't be a problem. Okay, so where have we been? Job is the man who suffers innocently. His friends don't think that's true. They try to argue him out of that position. He refuses. He seems very stubborn in that, but he is sure of his own righteousness. However, as we move through the book, the more Job talks, and he talks a lot, the more he talks, the less sure he is about God's righteousness, about God's justice. He feels that he's not been treated well, and he's he's increasingly frustrated by the fact that God won't give him any feedback. This has all happened to him, and God seems to be quite removed from the whole situation. And in order to get a meeting with God, which is his desire, uh, the best that he can do is try to manipulate the situation by giving God a legal challenge, a challenge to meet him in court, And so that is what grows throughout the long discussions that he has with his friends. He wants to meet God in court, and at the end, as we've seen, he gets his day in court. But the day in court is not what he anticipated. He anticipated going in and defending his position and calling God to account for what happened to him. He wants to hear from God not only his own vindication and justification, but he wants to hear as well how God can defend his own justice. So he gets to court, and as we saw last week in chapters 38 and 39, the discussion goes quite differently. In fact, what God does for two chapters is to redirect the conversation, not around the questions of innocence and justice and righteousness, but rather to the question of wisdom. Who is wise? How wise is Job? And that goes on for two chapters, at the end of which Job is silenced. God starts out the whole thing saying, I'm going to question you and you answer me. And at the end of those two chapters, uh, Job says, in effect, I've got nothing to say. But at the same time, Job doesn't surrender his charge. Uh, Job doesn't say, you know, I'm sorry I called this court case. Uh, I don't think I really have any case to press with you, God. He just goes silent. And most commentators feel that the implication of that is that Job is still sticking to his guns. He is righteous and he's not sure that God on his side is just or righteous. So, that means that we've got a two-part conversation then, 38 and 39, with the follow-up, and now in 40 and 41, which we look at today, God begins the same way. Again, he says, I'm going to question you. I want you to respond to me. What has happened so far is that Job begins to realize that the universe is far more complicated than he had thought. That's what's happened so far. Life is complicated. Well, let's go into this next section then which I have entitled, Let God Be God. Now, of course, that, I ran into that phrase a long time ago, and it's, it's a little, it catches you up a little bit short because you say, well, who are we to let God be God? God's going to be God no matter what, which is true. But the point of that kind of a statement is that, that for ourselves, there needs to be that attitude of saying, God, you are God and I'm not. And I'm going to try to live my life in a way that recognizes that you alone are God. That's the idea of the phrase. And we'll see how that becomes important in thinking through Job. So let's, uh, let's read some of the verses. The two chapters are, are quite long. But let's get uh, the basic idea here. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, second time. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, in this section, we're getting more toward this question of justice. So notice in yellow. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's where Job's been moving in this whole discussion. He's convinced he's righteous. Does that mean, then, that God is unrighteous in what has happened? So the Lord goes on, do you have an arm like God? And can your voice thunder like his? Well then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together, shroud their faces in the grave. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins, what power in the muscles of its belly! Its tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze, its limbs like rods of iron. Can anyone capture it by the eyes or trap it and pierce its nose? Can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. All right, well, God's second challenge to Job. Job has been silenced, but he hasn't given up his claim in court. And uh, we know as readers that if he goes to court against the Lord, he's going to lose his case. And uh, there's a measure of mercy here, I think, in which God is having this talk with Job to get him to to bow out of the case, so to speak, uh, and to preserve his, uh, well, whatever you preserve in uh, not going to, to court, right? So here's God's second challenge. First, is Job able to assume the role of judging the wicked or running the world? That's uh, the question that comes up here. Job has presumed that God's justice is not correct. There's uh, Lady Justice, right, with the blindfold on. She's... uh, She's going to give a just judgment, not uh, bias toward anyone. That's the idea of the blindfold. Uh, So this idea of justice, ultimately rooted in God himself, that God does what is right. He puts down the wicked. He raises up the humble and the righteous. Uh, Job thinks God isn't doing a very good job on that. Remember some of the discussion from earlier chapters Uh, Job's friends want to argue God's righteousness and how he always puts down the wicked and, and blesses the righteous. And Job says, you guys don't get out enough. Why don't you look at the world honestly and see how often there are wicked people who die comfortably. And see how often there are righteous people who suffer terribly right to the end of their lives. How does that work out? And the implication is that Job's saying, you know, I I think maybe I could do a better job at this. That's why I want to talk to God. Well, uh, God's now taking that on. He says in verse 8 of chapter 40, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me? to judge, to justify yourself. In verse 11 he says, Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Look at all who are proud and humble them. Crush the wicked where they stand. Job, uh, you think you can do a better job on this than I can. So here's your chance. You can be God for a day, Here's your job. Crush the wicked. Bring about justice as you understand it. Can Job do that? That's part of the challenge. Secondly, God says, Job, uh, let's consider a couple of monsters. Let me call them monsters. Behemoth and Leviathan. Chapter 40 is is Behemoth. Uh, What is this creature that's being described? And the scholars go back and forth on it. If it is a land creature, a, a regular animal, then the guesses are something like an elephant, or a buffalo, or a hippopotamus and they've all had their advocates, probably the majority of people who go the direction of a a normal land animal are talking, are thinking hippopotamus. Now, part of the challenge is, this is poetry, and so there's some things that don't fit, literally, with a hippopotamus. Uh, A tail like a cedar doesn't sound like a hippopotamus, right? So, then you have to say, well, what is this? Is this some poetic exaggeration to make a point? Or, the other school of interpretation here is that this is not supposed to be a a known animal, but rather describes a kind of monster, uh, a land monster. Uh, We'll save that for a minute and move over to the second animal, or, or monster, that is described in the whole of chapter 41. Leviathan, what, you know, what's this creature? And uh, if you take the route that this is a, a known animal, then the best guess is probably a crocodile. It, Talks about the scales and all the rest, but there's some things that don't fit a crocodile either, unless you just say it's poetry. So this animal is described as breathing fire, which sounds more like a, you know, almost a fairy tale account of a a dragon. But God says, Do you have the power to control behemoth or the power to control? Leviathan. Now there there may be earthly animals involved here, but it seems to me at least the background to this is some of the myths of ancient peoples that that talked about monsters as symbols of chaos and rebellion. And uh, if that's what's in the background here, then behemoth may symbolize the chaos, the earthly chaos that, uh, that this strange beast uh, brings about. How about, for example, the, the chaos that's caused by the coronavirus, huh? Certainly uh, amazing that this, in this case, a little virus can topple economies. Can threaten the best healthcare system in the world? I mean, imagine that. Do you sense the, the chaos that lies just under the surface of our highly touted technological culture and civilization? Just lurking, ready to come forth. Or there's Leviathan. <clears throat> From the ancient myths, Leviathan was a sea monster. And uh, uh, especially for some of these ancient peoples, uh, the the Israelite people in particular, uh, the sea was very threatening. They were not ocean-going people. The sea was restless and dangerous. And so uh, the ancient peoples came to speak of that restlessness, that Potential chaos of the sea that, with a little wind, can go from flat and calm to stormy and dangerous. They described that as the work of a, a monster called Leviathan. He was uh, the the monster had multiple heads, and it's clear that <clears throat> that image was used by the Israelites in a variety of ways. For example, Psalm 74 talks about uh, the way God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember, we've talked about that before. They came out uh, through the Passover experience, and they journeyed to the edge of the Red Sea, and there they were surrounded by Pharaoh's armies. The sea on one side and the army on the other, and what happened? Well, God opened a way through the waters. Here's what Psalm 74 says. God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. Notice, you broke the heads, plural. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. What's the what's the psalmist talking about? Well, what he's saying is that that ancient image of a monster of chaos is the way that the Egyptians threatened the Israelites. And God opened a path in the city in the sea. Israel journeyed through, and then this monster that was chasing them, the armies of Pharaoh, came into the sea and God destroyed them. He destroyed the multi-headed monster in the sea, Leviathan. So, how are we to understand this? Well, it, it, may, be, it may be animals, uh, but it may be animals, strong animals, dangerous animals, that, that the writer of Job describes using this image of chaos and the monsters that the ancient peoples knew about. And God says, look, Job, think about the forces of chaos that have come into your life. Think about the forces of chaos in the sea and on land that threaten empires. And tell me, are you sufficient to deal with those things? And that leads to a final question for Job. And that is, does Job need God? If Job can assume the role of judging the wicked and running the world, if Job can suppress and destroy the power of Behemoth or Leviathan, then God says, Job, you don't need me. You can be God of the world. So that's what he says in chapter 40 and verse 14. It says, Job, adorn yourself with glory and splendor like me. Unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. Then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. You can be your own God, Job. Is that what you want? Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Here's Job's answer. My eyes had heard of you, my my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. These are Job's final words in the book. It's not the conclusion of the book yet. We'll look at that next week. But these are Job's final words. the last thing we hear from Job in the presence of God saying, uh, I I repent in dust and ashes. So what's going on here? Job says, I have spoken without knowledge. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. This week I came across a a quotation from Carl Sagan, of all people. Uh, Sagan was a professor of astronomy at Cornell University. He was an agnostic. He, uh, he produced that PBS television series called Cosmos some years ago where he talked about the origins of the universe and, and all that. <clears throat> and uh, but here's an interesting statement by him. He says, the size and age of the cosmos, the universe, are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home." You get the sense there that he's overwhelmed, not by God, but what really functions in the place of God for Sagan, and that is the universe, the cosmos. He is so taken by the, the immeasurable size of the universe and the length of time that the universe has existed <clears throat> that he says uh, it's beyond ordinary human understanding. Now, if you can tra- transpose this to Job's experience with God, it's really very similar the size and the age of God, if you want to say it that way. For Job has become overwhelming. He says, I spoke without understanding. Job gets lost somewhere between the immensity of God, which is actually a term that theologians use to talk about God. Job is getting lost somewhere between the immensity of God and the eternity of God. And he's opened up a new, God has opened up for him a new perspective on himself and on God and on the world. And Job understands a little bit more of how much he does not know. Job said, I've I've heard about you. But now I have seen you. Now you remember, Moses had an encounter with God in the book of Exodus, where he said to God, God, show me your glory. And the Lord's response was, Joe, uh, Moses, no man can see my face and live. Paul, in writing to Timothy, gives that uh, beautiful doxology about God, the one who dwells in uh, inapproachable light, who, he says, no man has seen nor can see. And here's Job saying, now I've seen you. So where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us, again, recognizing that we're reading poetry here, right? And Job draws a contrast between what he has heard. We might say uh, some rumors of God, right? Some preliminary information about God which he has heard and which he has functioned on in his life. But now through this experience of suffering and, and its culminating encounter with God in the storm, he hasn't seen God directly, although he has seen the storm approaching. He's seen the lightning and the thunder. He's had an encounter with God that is deeper than anything he has had before. In that sense, he now sees God. He has an understanding of who God is that's not complete. He is still caught between God's immensity and God's eternity a little finite mind trying to understand the infinite but in that place now job comes to this conclusion he says i repent there's our sign for repentance that we've used a lot of different times huh repentance is that change of mind that results in a turning a going back A backing away from something what is job's repentance well it's not the repentance his friends wanted him to take right to confess to some sins that he didn't even commit but rather job's repentance is a repentance from charging god with injustice it's a repentance from thinking that job can do a better job of being god than god himself It's a sense of humility. What was the song that uh, the Ramages sang for us? Had the phrase in it something like, We will all be humbled when we see your face. Isn't that, isn't that what the phrase was? I thought, Yeah, that fits, doesn't it? That's what Job's experience is. He has had a more direct encounter with God, he has seen God, and he's humbled by it. He repents of the sin of what? Well, the sin of pride. The same sin that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, when human beings said, we'll be God for ourselves. Job gets the offer of being God for a day to see if he can rule the world better than God, at least fix his own circumstances. God says, if you can do that, Job, you don't need me. Job, at the end, repents. He says, yeah, I need God. And I repent of that pride which attacked God for the way he was ordering the world and even the way he ordered the circumstances of my life. Here's what John Hartley says in his commentary on Job. In taking this path, Job confirms that humility is essential for a vital relationship with God. With this concession, Job demonstrates that he serves God for himself alone and not for any personal gain or benefit, not even his own justification. Yahweh's confidence in his servant in the face of the Satan's challenge has been completely vindicated. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week when we wrap up our study here. Let's do a couple takeaways, huh? First takeaway. We with Job need to learn to rest in God's wisdom. You know, if you read the book of Job just fast through, your first impression is the book of Job is about righteousness and justice, particularly about the justice of God. huh? The fact is, That's not primarily what it's about. What it's primarily about is God's wisdom. I want to come back to that a little bit next week. But part of the message of Job, especially when we get into difficult times, is that we learn to rest in his wisdom as the one who not only rules the world, but who knows how to do ruling the world the right way. And the one who works in our lives with his wisdom. And so we learn to rest in that, to say, yes, God, I trust you that you are acting wisely, that you always act wisely. And then coming back to our title here, resting in God's wisdom means that we let God be God. And my temptation and your temptation is always to try to take that God perspective back to ourselves and to say, yeah, God, I, I think I'd be okay with you running the rest of the world, but at least in my world, I want to be God. I want to call the shots. I want to make the big decisions myself. And uh, part of the message of Job is, Job can't be God. He's now convinced of that. He doesn't want to be God. And uh, that's a lesson for us as well. And then finally, I think this is an important takeaway from the study of this book. Some questions will not be answered. It is striking, isn't it? that we've come all the way through this and Job gets his day in court to ask all his questions and at the end, his questions aren't even addressed. He never finds out why he suffered. God never tells him. We know more than Job does. Some questions don't get answered. And you say, why why is that the case? Well, uh, could be a number of answers. Most of you have had children. Uh, Children who love to ask the question, why? Uh, Ad nauseum. Some days, huh? And it's not just that you get tired of answering questions, but there are some questions that you cannot answer for a two-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old. Why? Because they don't have the capacity. You may not have the capacity either, but assuming you do, there are questions that can't be answered because of the incapacity of the child. Now, if that's the case in moving from one finite person to another, a finite parent, how much more would that be the case, do you think, moving from our finite minds to the infinite, immense mind of God? How must there not be issues, many, many issues, where we have to trust God's wisdom and understand that God is not able to answer all our questions? At least in this life. But, you know, I'm not sure that when we get to the other side, I'm not sure even then all the questions are going to be asked or answered. Why? Because we will always, even through eternity, remain finite, meaning limited, human beings. And God will always be the infinite transcendent God. And so there may well be things that we don't know the answer to. Will Job get the answer to why he suffered? I don't know. But what Job tells us, what this book tells us, is that's going to be okay with Job. And therefore, you and I can trust that it will be okay with us as well. When we see God, when we meet him, some of our questions will no longer be questions in the sense that they will not be important. They will be transcended in some extraordinary way by the reality that we as creatures created in the image of likeness of God have met with our source, the goal of all of our existence. That will be a day which is just hinted at in terms of How extraordinarily wonderful that will be, just hinted at by Job's experience. So next week, we're going to look at chapter 42 and wrap up our study of Job. Hope you can join us. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to dismiss back to front. So if you will wait for the ushers to dismiss you, that'll just help us to keep our distance a little bit. All right? Have a great week. It's been been good to get together again. So let me pray for you once again the blessing of Aaron on the Israelite people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his face to you, and give you peace. Amen.